Do you ever feel that you are in an internal wrestling match with sin and sin is winning? Now, there are some super spiritual believers who present an image that they have moved beyond the struggle with the evil inside, but the Apostle Paul is not one of them. Open your New Testament to Romans 7 and let's hear what the Spirit of Christ has to say about the war within as Dave Wurtson picks up the discussion at verse 14. I was called the deputy because we had a Western theme like I've often expressed to you and I had my cowboy hat on and my jeans and my Western shirt, my bandana and I carried actually carried a six gun on my side but our job as the program director was not only to, you know, to set the stage so we could communicate God's word, but we also had to make sure that the kids didn't leave. Because when the kids were coming, they were coming from New York City, New Jersey, Michigan, Ohio. They'd be coming to camp, and we'd have wagon rides, and we'd have bandits that would attack the covered wagons and all that kind of stuff. In fact, we could do a lot of things back then that you can't do now because the culture's become so violent. But one of the things we did at Saturday night at supper... Before those little six, seven, eight-year-old kids got homesick, we needed to get them totally focused so that they wouldn't leave and call home. And so right in the middle of dinner, we would have a Volkswagen bug. We'd open the double doors, and they would drive this Volkswagen bug right into the dining hall, right in the middle of, there were about 175 little six, seven, eight-year-olds. We had like 450 kids up through junior high and these guys would jump out with stockings over the head. You can tell it was a different scene because now you would think it was a robbery or something. But then it was fun. And we'd have these muscular guys that would go around the dining hall and they'd be flexing their muscles. One of the guys was the top heavyweight high school wrestler in the state of Pennsylvania. If, you know, if you're from Pennsylvania like Lane is, high school wrestling in Pennsylvania rivals Friday night football in Texas. And this guy, Schaefer, was the great big heavyweight champion in wrestling, and he could press about 275 pounds without even thinking about it. And he would be flexing his muscle. I mean, it would get out of hand at times. The kids would throw milk on him, and all kinds of crazy things would happen. The other guy was a guy that was about six foot four, and he was the discus throwing champion for the state of Delaware, which wasn't quite as impressive as heavyweight champion in wrestling in Pennsylvania, but he was another big dude. These were bad seats. They would have their manager, he'd have a beret on and sunglasses, and he would come to the microphone, and, and they would call themselves the bad boys. And they would be strutting around the dining hall, and their manager would take off his sunglasses, and he would challenge the sheriff and the deputy to a wrestling match that Saturday night after the meeting. You got the idea. The kids were focused on this big wrestling match that was coming. And so we could present the gospel to them about 7.30 to 8 o'clock. And then about 8.15, we cleared off the platform. Like we took this platform like this, totally cleared it off. We put mattresses in this big auditorium. And you can imagine there's about 450 kids. There's another couple hundred college students as counselors. We would put mattresses all over the stage and then we would put the counselors lining the front. Just like Saturday Night Wrestling, we put the counselors up the front so that the 450 kids or so wouldn't mob the bad guys, which could happen at times. It was very wild. So after the meeting, after we did this, the bad boys would drive their bug 
and the kids would see them come in. They'd come in with their manager and everything. We would take chains out of their pants. We would take razor blades out of their T-shirts, all kinds of things. Everybody's going boo-boo, just like Saturday Night Wrestling. And the idea was we'd start wrestling, and for two rounds, the guys would kill us. And that wasn't really hard to do because you know my frame. It was 5'8". It's even shorter than that now. I definitely wasn't any bigger when I was in high school. So at 17, when the discus-throwing champion that's 6'4 and presses well over 300, he could kill me. And for two rounds, he did. But all during the summer, on the third round, we would turn the tables. They would let us turn the tables. They would let us win. Those of you that are firemen know that a guy might be a lot bigger than you, but you can lift him up on your shoulders and spin around and throw him over your head, even if he's a lot bigger than you. So the third round, week after week, they would let us win all the kids cheer and the little deputies, the little six, seven, eight-year-olds would be able to sleep because the bad guys had been beaten and they forgot all about going home and they'd stay with us for a week at camp. This all went along really, really well until one week the bad boys decided they were tired of losing. We were about a minute into the third round. The discus-throwing champion from Delaware had me up in a round house. He had me up on his shoulders, spinning around like this, and I tapped him on the shoulder, and I said, John, it's time to let me win. <laughs> he spun harder. And then he just picked me up and threw me 10 feet across the stage into the mattresses, and the fight was on. It was real. How many of you have ever been in a situation where you're under the power of somebody that's going to kill you, and you don't have a chance? Well, that's what I was facing. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. The Apostle Paul, as you turn to Romans chapter 7, is talking to you about a wrestling match that every one of you are involved in. You've been in this wrestling match this week. And just like I could not overpower John, I want all of you to know that you have an opponent that can press a lot more than 300 pounds in this struggle. How many of you have ever, you've known that you shouldn't do something? You know that this is a wrong thing to do. You're thinking through it carefully. This is really stupid. I should not do this. I know that it's wrong. And, and I know a million reasons why it's wrong. How many of you, after all of that, have gone ahead and done it? Everybody, come on, raise your hand. That's what the Apostle Paul wants to talk to us about. You see, the Apostle Paul in Romans 6 has told us that when you come to Christ, and, and I want you to know Romans 7 Contrary to what some of the teaching you might get, I believe very strongly that Romans 7 doesn't go back and talk about you before you were saved. And I'm going to give you some strong reasons for that in today's study together. And I also don't believe that some of you are from backgrounds that hold that you can reach a state where you no longer struggle. In fact, I actually went to a college that was from that kind of a background, and my English teacher believed that she had reached a state of perfection. And in her theology, in the theology of this group of believers, is the Holy Spirit, as you work on holiness, as you work on goodness, you reach a point where you no longer struggle with sin. Anybody ever met someone like that? Well, I got news for you. My English teacher thought she never sinned, but she did because I was in her class. Sometimes she's sending the kind of questions she asked us on the test. 
I'm just teasing a little bit, but I could also ask her husband if she ever sinned and someone that lived close to her or her kids. And the truth of the matter is that the Apostle Paul, I believe, is telling us that in a healthy believer, and this might really encourage you, Again, how many of you have felt an internal conflict, even this week? You felt a tremendous tug of war going on in your heart. How many of you have ever felt with, I, I just wish I could get rid of this struggle. I wish I could get rid of this temptation. I wish I could get rid of this tremendous struggle with evil going on. A lot of us feel that way. And the Apostle Paul is telling us that until we go home to be with the Lord Jesus... You're going to have that struggle. Now, that's the bad news. But he's also going to tell us, beginning today, he's going to tell us the victory that we have. And one of the things that I want you to get a hold of is that the more that you study God's word, the more that you'll be able to face the truth about yourself, the truth about others, the truth about what Jesus Christ has done. And let me just set the stage. The Apostle Paul in Romans 6 told you that the moment you trusted Christ, you were joined with Christ in his death. Your old Adamic self, you were not born a good little kid. You were born a bad little kid. And that badness only progressed from bad to worse. When you came to Jesus, Jesus joined you with himself And from God the Father's perspective and God the Son's perspective and the gift of the Holy Spirit in your life, your sins were forgiven. That assures that in the end, you're going to come out okay if you truly came to Christ. The Apostle Paul also told us that we're not only joined with Christ in his death, but we're also joined with Christ in his resurrection. And so the Apostle Paul in Romans 6, when we get baptized, we not only say that we go down underneath the water and we join with Christ in his death, but when we come up out of the water, we say we join Christ in his resurrection. In Romans 6, the Apostle Paul says that that means that even physical death won't separate you from the love of God found in Christ Jesus. In your future, if the Lord doesn't come back for you and you die physically, just like that, you're going to be after from the body, present with the Lord. But the Apostle Paul also tells us who will deliver us from the body of this death. Physically, how many of you would say, I'm already totally experiencing the resurrection power of Jesus. My physical body is now a glorified body. How many of you would say that? How many of you feel this morning, like Mary's sick this morning, she doesn't have a resurrected, powerful physical body. She's sick. Some of you are older. When I first knew some of you, because I've been here a long time, you were vibrant and strong, and you could physically take me on. But as the years have gone by, I've noticed that there's not one of you that looked the same as you did 20 years ago. How many of you would agree, Dave, it's a hands-down case. Physically, we're not glorified yet. The same thing's true of your life morally and spiritually. And that's really important. You say, well, Dave, why is that important? Because across Africa, for example, you need to pray for African brothers and sisters. Across Africa, there's many big, powerful pastors that are saying, if you believe in Jesus, you'll be wealthy and you'll be healthy. How many of you ever heard of the health wealth gospel in the United States? Well, it is sweeping Southern Africa. If you lived in a hut and you went to live in, in Nairobi, a beautiful city, Wouldn't it be good news to find out when you're living in a ghetto, like I used to go to in the Lower East Side of New York when I was a little kid, wouldn't it be neat if you were living in a little one-room apartment 
up above in a bad section of a big metropolitan area. You could go on Sunday and someone says, if you believe enough, if you only trust God enough, and if you trust enough and you really get a hold of this belief, and if you say it, I'm going to get out of this tenement house, I'm going to get out of this tenement house, and I'm going to live in a multi-million dollar mansion, wouldn't you respond to that? Yeah. In fact, across the Metroplex, there's a lot of people that respond to that. And what happens is, if I taught you that, then I would live in a really nice mansion because I'd have to prove that my message is true, and all of you would be poor, and I would be rich, the big papa, and that would demonstrate that I have a lot of faith, and you don't. And it gives you this great yearning thing. What the Apostle Paul is saying is, that is a failure to understand the not yet physically. One day, God's going to pave the streets with gold. Right now, gold is something I might not have. I have something far more, but I might not have gold. One day, I'm not going to need a car because I can just go wherever I want to. You know, I don't know how they will transport in heaven. But right now, I'm going to have to fix trucks and cars and, and have some really wild experiences. That's the truth. It's also the truth in your life morally. You say, Dave, how do you know that? Because look what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 14. And let's pick up his argument. The Apostle Paul in Romans 7 is talking about the reality of this wrestling match. In fact, he uses the idea of war. There's a war going on inside of you. And let's pick it up at verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual. But I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. You see, in what Paul's been telling us about the law, that we are not under the law, we are under grace. It's easy to conclude from that that we are dead to the law, that somehow the law was bad. And one of the things that you need to understand about the Apostle Paul is that you need to keep tracking with him so that you understand reality. Because it'd be easy to conclude, in fact, a lot of believers have, that the law of God isn't good. In fact, Howard, for example, is doing a whole series on the need for us as believers to apply God's moral standards consistently by the power of the Spirit in the way that we live our lives in our social relationships. For example, you live in a society where someone will say, well, I'm a born-again believer. I'm a medical doctor. I'm a, a doctor that's a Christian. But I perform abortions all week long. And I hand condoms out to homosexuals, assuring them that I'll do everything to give them antibiotics so that they won't die of AIDS. Now, if someone's sick and you're a medical doctor and they don't know the Lord Jesus and they're struggling with homosexuality, you need to help them. You need to give them good medical advice. But you can't be saying that everything is hunky-dory. That is a denial of the law of God. It's a jettison the Old Testament. Does that make sense? You live with a lot of people in our culture that have decided that there isn't any law. And I want you to think really hard about it. You live in a society that's decided that there isn't any such a thing as God's divinely revealed law. That you decide what is true. And I want you to think really hard about it. In order for life to have meaning, there is law. There is a standard. So, for example, all you kids at school will be taught as you move up into high school that it's really a good thing to tolerate all kinds of sexual orientations. You, our kids will be exposed to that. I guarantee if you go to a university, you're going to be taught that. Well, that's morality. I think it's immorality, but it is morality. Your professor at college will be just like me. In fact, they will sound just like a preacher. 
They will talk to you about this is the new cause. This is the new identity. You're going to be tempted to be sucked up into that. But I want you to stop and think about it. Who's deciding that? 50 years ago, if anyone would have said homosexuality is fine, it's great for the culture, it's great for the nation, they would have been laughed at. No one would have said that. Now it's the accepted, quote, quote, right and wrong. Who decides that? Well, some progressive socialists. By the way, who really decided it is a lot of people that are very brilliant, and they decided that they couldn't beat their temptation, so they decided, let's just redefine what the law is. That's really what happened. So at Yale, for example, there will be a guy that's very brilliant in New Testament studies, and he argues that Jesus' relationship with his disciples was a homosexual relationship, and that means that we should all celebrate it. Why did he do that? Because he hasn't been able to beat homosexuality since he was a little kid. So he decides that God's moral law, which Romans 1, isn't Romans 1 pretty clear that God gave them over to desires that they lusted for one another and it produced really bad things in their body? Now, what I'm teaching you right now, our culture is rapidly moving. I've shared this often with you, and I'm using this because I can really hold your attention, but I want you to apply this to all kinds of changes in our culture about what is right and what is wrong. Our culture has decided that there's no divinely revealed standard. There's no real right and there's no real wrong. And what I want you to do is I want you to apply that to other areas. For example, how many of you think that lying is wrong? If I decide, well, I was born a liar and I've been lying since a little kid and I think lying is just the way that I exist, it's who I really am. So I'm going to found a whole group of people on Liars for Jesus. Why do you laugh at that? Because you're not ready yet in your culture, even in your public schools, they're not ready to teach you that lying's okay. I'll tell you, one of the areas that we're not ready, how many of you think stealing? I'm, I'm stealers for Christ. In other words, I'm an accountant, and I don't see anything wrong. I work for Citizens National. I don't see anything wrong with taking some of the money out of your account because as I work with these accounts, a lot of you have more money than you really need, and I need some of your money. And so I feel it's perfectly legitimate for me when I'm working on your account at Citizens National to steal a little bit of your money. How many want to put money in the bank? Like, By the way, Citizens National isn't doing that. Your culture is not ready at all. In fact, I want to tell you something. You can do what you want to in our culture sexually. You can do what you want to in our culture gossip and slander. But don't you mess around with the money. Because if you steal one dollar, you'll be gone. Because America worships. We're not ready to jettison God's standards about business. Even an unbelieving businessman knows if you cheat and you steal with the money, the whole system goes in the tank. So America still has its Puritan heritage when it comes to money. What the Apostle Paul is telling you is something that every one of you know in your heart. The law is not an evil thing. It is a good thing. It is spiritual. But he says we are sold. We are unspiritual. What it means here is that there's a part of us, and the Apostle Paul is being honest, we are living in a not yet. We're not totally like Christ yet. We are not totally home yet. We still have a part of our I, Dave Wirtz, and still has a part of himself that is unspiritual. How many of you have feelings, I don't want to go to church today. I don't want to read my Bible. Anybody wrestle with that? 
Anybody ever felt like, I don't feel spiritual at all. I just want to get away from all that stuff. Anybody ever wrestled with those feelings? That proves that you're unspiritual. You don't have a hunger for the vertical relationship with the living God. And what I want to understand is that you're sold as a slave to that. You are in bondage to that, and so am I. And now we're going to talk about it. What he's going to do now, he's going to talk to us about our failure to do what we want to do. You tell me if this is the way some of you look. I do not understand what I do. Anybody identify with that? I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do. But what I hate to do, I do. Anybody ever wrestled with that? How many of you have ever said, I don't want to do it? And then 20 minutes later, you've done it royally. Anybody ever done that? Okay. That's an admission of reality. Every one of us in this room, if we're honest, have wrestled with that. There's a bad news in that. It's an admittance of failure. We have good intentions. And one of the things the scripture is teaching is, especially if you've come to Jesus, there's a part of you that's really convicted by the law. When you learn about God's standards, if you really know Jesus, and when you read his word, and when you read like Deuteronomy, you want to walk with the Lord every second. So that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about. We want to do it, but when it comes to implementing, how many of you have trouble with implementation? Well, that's the bad news. Now, here's some really good news in the midst of that. Your very passion to want to do the right thing says something about you. Look what he says in the next verse. He says, and if I do what I do not want to do, how many of you have ever done something that deep in your soul you didn't want to do? Notice what he says. If I do what I don't want to do, I agree that the law is good. Did you catch Paul's point? You see, if you know that I'm doing what isn't good to do, I don't want to do it then something's happened in your life. When I speak to an unbelieving audience, they would throw me out of my ear when I talk about God's sexual standards, especially if I hit the hot button in modern society. If I spoke to a bunch of secular kids at the University of Texas, where my kids went, they would rise up like a church congregation and with moral indignation throw me out because I don't think homosexuality is a really great, holy, good lifestyle. But when you come to Jesus, when you come to Jesus, deep inside of him, when you read Romans 1, you go, that's right. That's really good. That's a good law. And the Apostle Paul is going to tell you something about it. If you agree that the law is good, as it is, when this is really important, the Apostle Paul is saying, if that's happening in your life, it is no longer I myself will do it, but it is sin living in me. I want you to see. The Apostle Paul, this is why I know Paul's talking about a believer. An unbeliever would never be like this, would never talk like this. The Apostle Paul is saying, when in my heart I know that God's law is good and I want to do God's moral law, even when I don't do it and I can't implement, the Apostle Paul is saying that very struggle inside of you, not just a struggle with your conscience, but a struggle deep in your soul that you, you now want to do what God wants you to do. What he's saying is that proves that there's a new I inside of you. That makes sense? The very struggle proves, like if you're sitting here saying, you know, Dave, I just come through a week. I've really been struggling. I wanted to study God's word. But I didn't do it as consistently as I wanted to. I really wanted not to look at that movie. I wanted to get up and not expose myself to idolatry of immorality. 
Even if you fail, the Apostle Paul is saying the fact that you're split inside now shows that something's happened in your life. And I want to really talk to you honestly. If you never have that struggle, in other words, if you can just sin and everything's great, if you're sitting here and going, I don't care less what David says in the Bible. I just want to get out of here. Then you need to ask yourself about what you've done with the cross, what you've done with Jesus. Because it's really possible that you've never come to Jesus. But if you have come to Jesus, I want to encourage you today because your life is going to be filled with this struggle. And I want to assure you this struggle is going to continue till you're taken home to be with Jesus and then you won't struggle anymore because you'll be totally made Christ-like. But right now, the Lord, moment by moment, is going to use the struggle. So don't quit because you're having the struggle because the struggle proves that a miracle's taking place in your life. You now agree that God's standards are good. You now agree that God's morality will produce life. That's what the Apostle Paul is arguing. If I actually feel badly that I'm not doing the good that I want to do, then it means that there's now a part of me that really is good. That resurrection power has happened inside of me. That I become a new person. The Apostle Paul is going to develop that. He says this, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. How many of you watch Oprah almost every afternoon? I want to ask you, it's very important. You should watch Oprah. She's one of the greatest communicators in our society. But Oprah disagrees with what I just read. Oprah doesn't believe that there's nothing good dwelling in you. And so you're going to have to decide, as believers, you can follow Oprah. Dr. Phil does not believe. What does Dr. Phil tell somebody when he's confronted them? He's almost mean and aggressive. But what does Dr. Phil tell them? You need to take responsibility. Dr. Phil never says, you're a dirty, lousy, rotten, rebellious sinner. What Dr. Phil will tell him, and Oprah will join in, your identities, you don't have a good self-image. Have you ever heard that? How many of you school teachers have been taught the problem with our kids is they have a really lousy self-image? So I want you to imagine, you were in the grocery store, and your little three-year-old has yelled at you, and thrown all the rice checks off the shelf for the 30th time. How many of you have ever been in that situation? And the little three-year-old is, is clenching their fists, they're yelling and screaming at you, and they're saying, I don't like you, Mommy. I hate you, Mommy. What you need to do is you need to take them outside and put your arm around them, and you need to say, you know what? You don't have a good self-image. It's really obvious that I haven't loved you enough. And what's really going on here is if you only thought more of yourself, if you only valued yourself more, then you would not rebel against me. So what we're going to do now is we're going to negotiate about the rice checks. In fact, we'll get a bunch of rice checks and we'll let you throw them off so you can kind of get that out of your system and you can affirm yourself by throwing a rice check to learn. How many of you think that that makes a lot of sense? That's what your society, tons of people in your society believe that. You guys are going to hear that a million every way. Now, I'm going to tell you the truth about me, and it's about you and about all your kids. There is no good dwelling in you. Does that mean that nobody ever does anything good? No. Hillary Clinton does some good. Some of you don't think so, but she does. She's not totally evil. Bill Clinton does some good things. From the other side of the spectrum, President Bush does some really good things. 
You see, all of you demonize your enemy. The truth about you and every one of you do some good, but you know what? If you do good outside of Jesus, you're an arrogant you-know-what about it. When you do good, you help a poor person. You give them money. And then you'll think in your heart, what a great person I am. I just gave money to the poor. You know what? If you're poor, you hate someone like that. You're patronizing. We go to Africa. The poor Africans. We're going to help them out. We're going to give them billions of dollars in Africa. You know what Africans think about that? They don't like it. You know why? Because you're a big, white, Western, Caucasian. That's arrogant. You don't come to Africa to learn. You don't come to Africa to find out what's really going on. You don't come to Africa like Jesus did and incarnate yourself with us. You come from the outside. And you give us billions of dollars. And that's really, really helped. You see how it works? Even when we do good things, we become arrogant and controlling. And that's what Paul is telling us. That's the truth. There's no good thing inside of me except by the grace of Jesus. And that's what I want all of you to realize. There's no good thing. Your problem is not that you don't have a good self-image. You got too good at self-image because your image is really bad outside of Jesus. And we won't face it. The Apostle Paul says the truth. There's nothing good that lives in me. That's in my sinful nature. Notice how he separates. In the nature I was born with. In my Adamic nature. And so he's not nullifying that something really marvelous happened. For I have a desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry out for what I do not, for the good that I want to do. No, the evil I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, and this is Paul's point, now if I do what I do not want to do, if you are doing what you don't want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me. This morning, you need to recognize, like I need to recognize when John had me in a power roundhouse, I'm in a struggle, and sin is bigger than me, just like John was bigger than me. So you're not going to overcome it through your own strength. You're not going to overcome it through your behavior techniques. You're not going to overcome it through self-discipline. If you do clean up one area of your life, it'll just shift into another area of your life. That's what Paul wants to see. But he also wants you to know if you're a born-again believer, then the very struggle is showing that you have become a new person, and he's going to go on and talk to us in verse 21. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, and Paul's repeating himself so that we get his point. He's a great teacher. When I want to do good, evil is right there inside of me. I want every one of you this morning to recognize the power of evil in your life and mine. I don't want you to redefine what evil is. I want you to realize evil is really evil. It is really powerful. It gets a hold of us. He says, evil's right there within me. For in my inner being, and Paul uses inner being of your true identity in Christ in this context. There's an inner part of me when I came to Jesus that delights in God's law. How many of you know this? I asked you, how many of you didn't want to have your quiet time? How many of you also had a part of you that says, I want to go and be with other believers today? How many of you got up this morning and said, there's a part of me, I want to go and fellowship with God's people? As I'm sitting here, I want to know God's word. How many of you have a part of you that even when I'm teaching you, it's saying, hey, I want to follow God's standards and sexuality and truth-telling, and I want a kind of a marriage that will be faithful. How many of you find that part of you? Well, rejoice. You know what that means? You're a child of God. It means a miracle's happening. It's not true anymore that no good dwells in you because Jesus, by a gift of grace, has poured good in you. He's changed your life. And now the Apostle Paul is going to drive it home as we close. Look what he says. 
But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin. And I want you to see the emphasis on your thought because one of the biblical ideas is what you think in your mind. Your thoughts are very influential. And if your thoughts respond to the truthfulness of God's revelation, it will change your life. That's the way the Lord has made us. Even a good psychologist, you call that cognitive therapy, a fancy psychological word. If you come to me and I'm a cognitive therapist, but what we're saying is that, that your actions flow from the way you think. That makes sense? And the Apostle Paul, that's not unbiblical. The Apostle Paul is going to talk to us in Romans about renewing our mind. And all the way through the book of Romans, he's been trying to influence by the way that you really think inside. Because your thoughts really do control you. So he's talking about there's an inner law, there's a new mind that we've been giving that really understands. He's saying that, but I see another law working the murder of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin and working with my members. Notice your physical body, the part of your physical body. Paul's not saying that your physical body is evil. One day the Lord's going to redeem it. But he is saying that, that sin really causes us to use our hands and our eyes and our feet. We use our physical body, the members of our body, to do things that are wrong. And that's against what we know inside we shouldn't do. He goes, what a wretched man that I am. How many of you have ever felt, what a wretched person I am? Anybody ever felt that? You see how different that is from a self-image thing? Most of you are afraid this morning. Like if someone cried out this morning, stood up suddenly as we closed, and said, what a wretched person I am. You know what your response to that would be? Heavens, we need to get them over to a good psychologist so their identity, so that they won't feel they're wretched. And that's what's wrong with most of us. Most Americans don't know how wretched they are outside of Jesus. Luther got saved because he finally faced I'm a wretched person. We used to sing. How many of you love Amazing Grace? Amazing Grace. How many think that's one of your favorite hymns? It's the most popular hymn in our culture. But hardly anyone listens to the words. That saved a... Everybody tell me. Where do you think that came from? The people that sing that... You know what we sing in America? I don't know why you needed to save me, Jesus. Because I'm a really good person. And what you really should have done, you shouldn't have died on the cross. You didn't need to have the Pharisees reject you like that and the Roman leaders. What you need to do is, is, is tell us how good we were. You needed to give us a new sense of how beautiful we were, how incredible we were as people. In fact, if you would have introduced a good social program, we could have got rid of slavery in the Roman Empire. We could have got rid of baby girls being killed in the streets. Jesus, you really blew it. You died on the cross. You see, if you don't understand what I'm talking about, if you just believe that you can do it in your own strength and you never cry out, oh, wretched man that I am, you'll never understand the meaning of the cross. This morning, I cry out, oh, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from the body of this death? And Oprah's going to tell you, improve your image. Read another book. And people that tell you that are going to make millions of dollars, but it'll never work. You'll sweep one area of your life clean, and then it will only creep out another area. The Apostle Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And then he answers, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. My passion for you this morning is that every one of you will say, without Jesus, what a wretched man I am.
even after I come to Jesus, there's a part of me in the not yet before eternity that still stinks, that still rebels, that's wretched. The original words to Amazing Grace weren't even wretched. The original words were that saved a worm like me. But thanks be to God who gave us the victory to our dear Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul says, so that we wouldn't forget, so that I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law. So there's a part of you that's now become enslaved to God's moral standards because of amazing grace. But you also are in a wrestling match with a sinful nature that makes you a slave to the law of sin and death. And next week, we're going to talk about that the power of God's Holy Spirit trumps the card. And I'm going to give you an illustration. As John was spinning me around in that roundhouse, okay, there was a guy sitting right there in the auditorium named Ray Carlson. He was the director of our camp. I was five foot eight. John really was six foot four. No evangelistically speaking. We lifted weights in the afternoon. John could bench press about 350. I was doing good even back then to get about 225, which was good. But John was going to kill me. Like when he grabbed a hold of me, I knew. Have you ever had someone grab a hold of you that they know it, they can kill you? But Ray Carlson was sitting right there. Ray, I told you in the past. He was, was the champion in Pennsylvania. He was a little bit older than Henry, the guy that was fighting us. But Ray could press a lot more than John. In fact, Ray would have about four of us attack him all at once. And Ray could just take his forearm and put it across my shoulder, and I was totally helpless. But that night, Ray just sat there. To be honest with you, that night ended disastrously. They killed us. I was, I was hurting for about two weeks. A lot of ways it hurt the whole week because we were supposed to teach the Bible the rest of the week. And the kids asked me all week, why didn't the bad guys beat you? So I had to have many sessions with Henry and John. You can't do this with 475 kids. It's not going to work. You know what I needed that night? I needed Ray while John was powerhousing me to stand up and tap John on the shoulder and say, you're going to take me on. And Ray never did it. But this morning, Jesus, as you leave this auditorium, wants to do that for you, for you, for you. Brothers and sisters, we've got an incredible, heavenly, Olympic champion that never gets beat. Amen. That's what it means to say, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I've got a great let me down. To be honest with you, he let me down morally. He ended up having adultery later on in my career with him. Ray let me down in a lot of ways. But the Jesus that I talked to you about today has never let me down. And what a healthy, spiritual person does is they face the reality of the sin nature with them. They recognize, oh, wretched man that I am, and they cry out in thanksgiving, thanks be to God for this incredible, crucified, and risen, resurrected Savior. Because he gives me the victory. And what's going to happen in your life as you let God's Holy Spirit control your life and fill your life, and you begin to enter into that true understanding of what the Bible's saying, throughout the course of a lifetime, Jesus really is going to make that new person inside of you become more and more strong more and more expressing itself until one day you are going to be delivered from the body of this death and you won't struggle no longer. 
you will just give thanks and praise forever. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is 1-888-668-7884.